Hi, this is Hugh Southey, host of this week's Matrix podcast. Before the podcast starts, I wanted to apologise briefly to Professor Daniel Wincott, one of this week's contributors. Uh, Unfortunately, because of technical difficulties, some of his contributions were lost at recording stage and so haven't been able to be edited into this week's podcast. Uh, I hope that doesn't uh, spoil your enjoyment of a podcast that I hope covers some interesting material. Thank you. Welcome to uh, the latest Matrix podcast. I'm Hugh Southey. I'm obviously not one of the regular hosts, but I'm hosting this one for a particular reason, as well as being an English English and Welsh barrister, I should say, like most of the members of Matrix. I am also a barrister with a practicing certificate in Northern Ireland and in normal times will generally be in Northern Ireland at least once a week. And one of the things that that has taught me is that quite often there isn't enough consideration, particularly in the London-based media, of what is happening in the devolved administrations. And the importance of the devolved administrations really became clear, I think, last weekend when the Prime Minister announced the start of the relaxation of lockdown, when each of the administrations adopted a different approach. And one of the things it seems to me that's fascinating about COVID is that Generally, devolution has has produced a settlement that has left threats really to the state in the hands of the Westminster government. But here we face our greatest challenge and we do so in circumstances where key powers are held by the devolved administrations. And it was interesting today on the Today programme to hear the mayor of Gateshead talking about how he wished he had devolved powers because he didn't feel that uh, London was recognising the high risk of infection in Gateshead. And so one begins to see how devolution has become perhaps much more real because of the importance of the powers. So with no more from me, uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. And perhaps unsurprisingly, we've got somebody to represent Wales, Ireland and uh, Scotland. In terms of, I'm going to do this in order of first name because I couldn't think of any other order to do it in. Um, Firstly, we have Professor Aileen McCarg. Professor McCarg is a professor of public law and human rights at Durham Law School. Since uh, that, since uh, September last year. Prior to that, she held the chair of public law at Strathclyde University, uh, as well as previously holding posts at Glasgow and Bristol universities. And her main teaching and research interests uh, lie in UK and Scottish constitutional administrative law. Then we have uh, Professor, Professor Daniel Wincott, who is the Blackwell Law and Society Chair at Cardiff University uh, School of Law and Politics. Professor Wincott is a political scientist and a policy analyst by background uh, who's developed wide-range research interests and an enthusiasm for working across uh, disciplines, politics, law, socio-legal studies, uh, social and public policy. Professor Wincott's research range ranges over issues uh, such as devolution and territorial governance, constitutional law and politics, comparative welfare state theory and analysis, uh, among other matters. He also directs the Governance After Brexit research programme funded by the Economic and Social Research uh, Council. Finally, we have Dr Evelyn Collins, Chief Executive of the Equality Commission in Northern Ireland. Dr Collins has been that uh, Chief Executive since uh, March 2000. She is an experienced expert on equality issues since the 1980s, mainly having worked in Northern Ireland, but also uh, she's worked as a national expert on gender equality in the European Commission. Dr Collins is also the chair of the Equal Rights Trust uh, and was previously chair of the board of Equinet, the European Network of Equalities Bodies, and that was from October 2013 to October 2017. So welcome, everybody. What I want to ask you all first is to think a little, uh, to think back to what seemed like an age ago um, um, when sort of lockdown first became a reality and, and actually probably just slightly before that. 
when it was becoming obvious that something dramatic was going to happen. At that stage, as I say, it was obvious that, that the government was going to have to introduce regulation. For each of your jurisdictions, do you think it, there was an immediate response, this was something local that needed to be addressed by the devolved administration? Or do you think it was seen as a UK issue? Aileen, going first, as I introduced you first. Um, well, I think it was recognised to be a global issue with particular local implications, because, you know, obviously, uh, various other countries were, were, were going into lockdown, and we could see this uh, pandemic spreading across the world. So, um, my impression is that there, there was a desire right from the word go for a coordinated response, um, but a coordinated response that recognised that there were particular local responsibilities and also particular local capacities. So, you know, health um, is a devolved matter, and that isn't important simply from a legal point of view, from where the, the legal powers lie, but it's also important from, from an administrative point of view, you know, it, the administrative capacity and the, the administrative knowledge um, in relation to the health service rests in uh, the four different parts of the UK. So I think for practical reasons, um, there was an expectation that it should be dealt with on a coordinated basis. I suspect there was a little bit of uh, frustration, though, um, about the speed of, of that coordinated response. And perhaps um, the Scottish government might have wanted to, to move a little bit quicker than the UK government. But I don't perceive any uh, frustrated desire to to go their own way um, um dan sorry i, I realized that firstly I, I got the language wrong when speaking about wales and I, I referred to four jurisdictions and obviously Wales is <laughs> not a, a, a separate jurisdiction but it has separate powers what's your views in terms of wales what was it seen as being an issue for wales essentially to 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 sort of take the lead in and setting rules for lockdown and things like that or was it seen as something that required a uk-wide response uh, response so i mean I'd, I'd agree with the comments about scotland I, I think it's both that there was a clear sense that naturally the welsh government would be involved and would be leading in wales particularly with respect to devolved areas of uh, policy competence but that also it needed a coordinated uk-wide approach Evelyn, turning to you, Ireland obviously was in a slightly different position in that, as far as Ireland was concerned, it already had the precedent of the Republic of Ireland taking fairly dramatic action. I mean, the Republic of Ireland's schools closed before the um, schools in the United Kingdom closed or indeed before lockdown occurred in the United Kingdom. And my impression, because I was in Belfast at about that time, was that that created a real sense of concern, essentially, because people were concerned that um, things weren't happening as quickly as they were happening, happening in the Republic of Ireland. Um, what's your view of sort of the response, how the response to COVID uh, in the United Kingdom was seen in uh, Ireland at that stage and whether or not there was a, 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 a demand, essentially, for the devolved administration to take more action? There certainly was um Noticeable concern, anxiety, unease about the difference um, in in what was happening in Ireland compared to what was happening in the UK. Of course, we share a border. There's much, much um, exchanges back and forward um, and concern as we were all watching what was happening in Italy and Spain, that measures weren't being taken quickly enough um, at the UK level. Um, we saw certainly a, you know, a desire by many to have an all-island approach um, at that point, um, as it was clear that the virus has no respect for borders, um, for example, but also, um, you know, a, a, a evident commitment on the part of the executive rather newly formed executive in January 2020 only to, or some of the executive to um, follow the lead of the UK. Um, ultimately, um, schools in Ireland did close much earlier, 12th of March, um, 
and many other things, 24th of March, all non-essential business closed. We were in a situation where um, the Prime Minister on the 16th of March was saying, work from home if you can, you know, don't go to bars and restaurants, but they weren't actually being closed. Those sorts of things created a level of anxiety simply about safety and security. Um, of people. Um, I think on your general question about was it seen as a UK or devolved responsibility, certainly um, the UK overall providing the lead and, you know, the Coronavirus Act being debated in Parliament and taking the emergency powers to address the obvious, you know, serious public health threat um, was important, um, followed by the, the um, executive agreeing the, the regulations, both in relation to um, health regulations, detailing the restrictions and the requirements imposed uh, and education requirements. And those issues around health, education, justice are devolved matters and need to be um, addressed locally. So I, I think that was important at the two levels. Um, and there is a general acceptance around the, you know, need to um, take such extraordinary measures in the face of the the um, public health threat. Turning now to last weekend, I mean, I, it, I mean, it seems to me sort of from a London perspective that the, the, the problem last weekend was that whereas lockdown was something that pretty much everyone supported, there is a, there's a much greater divergence in views as to how to manage um, the lifting of lockdown. And that's obviously reflected in the fact that each devolved administration took a slightly different approach. Um, asking each of you, I mean, is, it now, is there now a greater sort of demand really for a local uh, approach? Starting with you, uh, Aileen, um, in Scotland, is there a demand for a sort of greater demand for a local approach? Uh, yes, I mean, I think so. I think the, uh, the the Scottish government is very clear that it it's uh, it's its decision to to uh, to decide when lockdown should end in Scotland. That is a legal duty that's placed um, separately on each of uh, each of the four governments, um, and that needs to be uh, taken with local circumstances in in mind. So I think the um, I, th- I think there is there is a preparedness to be um, to go separate ways if it's justified, but I think still a preference for a coordinated approach. So I think there was a, a frustration certainly with um, the way in which the announcements were made last weekend, the lack of it seems consultation or information for the devolved governments, and also that the you know very confused messaging. So. When the prime minister gave his uh, his, his uh, broadcast on Sunday, he did not at any point make clear that a lot of what he was saying was applicable only to to England, and I think that that is really unfortunate um, in creating uh, genuine confusion, but also you know the the opportunities for a political mischief making. So you know you're seeing some people saying. Oh well, we're not going to follow the Scottish government. We're going to follow what the UK government says. You know, even though um, the legal position is 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 different. So I think, uh, so I think yes, willingness, uh, uh, the sense that it should still be coordinated, but coordinated does not mean everybody's doing the same thing. Um, and there's been some suggestions that that there might be scope for a differentiated response even within Scotland. So. You know, some uh, of the islands might be able to come out of lockdown earlier uh, than uh, than the mainland, and and that's a, a pattern you've seen in in other countries that that local responses are are being followed where appropriate. Can, can I just pick up one thing, a couple a couple of things you just said before moving on? Uh, one thing you you mentioned obviously was the possibility or the the, the fact that some people are saying essentially. I'm not going to comply with the Scottish regulations because they go further than uh, the, UK, uh, the English uh, regulations. Mm. Um, do you think there's any um, willingness, any any likelihood of a, of a challenge based on that, that, that effectively the Scottish uh, regulations are disproportionate because the English regulations show you don't need as much? Um, I haven't heard any suggestion of... Uh, a legal challenge. I mean, I guess it's 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 possible. People are trying 
in various different jurisdictions to challenge lockdown regulations. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that there is much prospect of of success there, um, partly because under any sort of proportionality test, um, you know, if the circumstances are genuinely different in different parts of the UK, then that that the, then a differentiated response is perfectly appropriate. And and the Scottish government argues that the the rate of infection in Scotland is is currently higher than it is in England, for instance. But also, I would have thought that um, the courts would be fairly reluctant to interfere with. Um, political decision making here because you know whilst they are being guided by the science um, there are still political judgments to be made judgments about um, you know the appropriate balance between different economic and health considerations uh, and so on which which you know may legitimately vary from from uh, fr- from country to country one other thing about the UK role that I just wanted to pick up, given some of the things you'd said, and also um, something I heard during one of the Prime Minister's uh, briefings this week. Um, one of the concerns that seemed to be raised by a Scottish journalist was the fact that the furlough scheme is a UK responsibility, and you could effectively get to a position where lockdown continued in Scotland, but furlough wasn't being supported. Do you think that's a, a widespread concern and would that result in a, in pressure for sort of greater economic freedom for Scotland? Uh, well, I mean, I think it is a genuine problem and, and it's an illustration of the fact that, that as, as Dan said earlier, that the relevant competences here are divided. So health competences lie at the devolved level, but most of the economic powers um, lie at the at the UK level. So, So that is obviously a good reason why coordination is desirable and why um, the uh, the apparent uh, legal powers of the the Scottish government may be undercut by by reality I mean there may be other things they could do as an alternative to the furlough scheme there are devolved uh, welfare powers uh, powers uh, new benefits can be created in devolved areas so you could imagine for instance um, uh, issues around uh, perhaps increasing housing uh, subsidies or um, uh, replacing the furlough scheme with with uh, more generous business grants and so on. Uh, these all come up against the the, the reality, though, of, uh, of of lack of money, and that is going to be a, a, a constraint on the freedom of the of the Scottish government as well. So I think that's you know so that's one of these things where. Um, legal autonomy sometimes comes up against political reality. What you may be able to do legally, you know, might not actually be able to do uh, in practical terms. Whether that um, ha- you, you suggested it might have an impact on on the economics of independent or the the, the, polit- the politics of, of the independence debate, but it's very difficult to know what the implications will be for that. Um, as with all of these things, arguments can cut both ways. I mean, the, the it may. Um, it, it may be seen as showing the economic dependence of, of Scotland on the rest of the UK and therefore that it would be um, unwise to suggest uh, greater independence at this stage. On the other hand, it may, you know, it may be seen as, well, if only we had full control over the levers of government, then we could have done things differently. Uh, Daniel, um, turning to Wales, I mean, Wales, I think, was the first uh, uh, of the devolved administrations to announce what it was planning. Uh, and it, uh, in fact, um, slightly relaxed the local rule that was not a, a, a UK wide rule about exercise, um, among other things. Um, looking at sort of the, the questions I've just raised from a Welsh perspective, was this was the sort of need for a local response seen as being more significant or, or was there greater demand for a local response last weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think there are two things uh, happening which are which are kind of confused. One is about the kind of territorial constitution, the structure of the constitution and who has the authority to make what decisions in which of what we'll call the four nations for now, although I've got a question I'd like to ask you about that in a moment. Um, And the other is then that, you know, 
the 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 the, vi the virus a pandemic doesn't respect uh you know the boundaries we set up around political and legal systems so you know it's absolutely the same in wales as well you know wales has actually got as far as we can tell and the data is not great you know has had very very high infection rates in southeast wales in particular newport south wales for for the after the initial london peak you know south wales followed and that wasn't really widely recognized or reported there was a little bit of reporting of it but you know the southwest of england very low rates and west wales north wales also very low rates so you know if you're trying to run wales obviously you don't want people from high infection rates going to low infection rates or people from low low infection places going to high infection places and then going back again and the same is going to be true uh in 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 england as well evelyn um obviously uh northern ireland has taken a different approach to both um uh, uh, the english government uh and also the republic of ireland um uh, how has that been seen and 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 uh, again what impact has that had on people's sort of perception of devolution well i, I think it is interesting that the executive have presented a pretty united front around the um, releasing from the restrictions that were in. Um, they have expressly said um, that they're committed to good cooperation, you know, with uh, kind of east, west and north, south, um, as well as actually learning from jurisdictions elsewhere. We hear our politicians a lot talk about World Health Organization um, guidelines um, and so on. But it's very clear and they, they have had a consistent message on this that the decisions on the future approach to the restrictions are for the executive to take um, based on medical evidence and, and uh, science, um, uh, as they say. So I think that is important. I think the, the, there certainly was confusion locally um, whenever the message by the Prime Minister was changed um, and, you know, what did that mean and so on. But the executive was quite clear. The message here remains stay home, you know, save lives. Um, and that's quite clear. Um, the, the executive published its detailed plan um, on the 12th of, of May, just you know, earlier this week. Ireland had published its plan on the 1st of May. Um, and Ireland's plan is in five stages starting from Monday, actually, I think 18th of May and running through to um, middle of August. And you can see at each stage very detailed and lots of public information around that. The Northern Ireland plan, um, five stages also, but no dates in it. And that's had been subject to quite a lot of discussion you know, locally here, um, particularly business community, you know, so people have accepted the need for the restrictions by and large, um, but business would like in particular to know timelines so that planning can commence and so on. So that's been a, a big discussion here um, this week. But I think acceptance generally of the need for a coordinated approach and, and good working relationships, but uh, absolute acceptance that it's for the executive to decide when and what's suitable um, here. Um, one thing, obviously, that we now have because of the um, difference of approach is that, 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 in one sense, the borders uh, within the United Kingdom, which um, generally have been um, perhaps of limited significance, um, potentially are, from a legal point of view, more significant. Um, is there... Uh, any real evidence, and I certainly haven't seen any, but I'd be interested to know whether you think um, this is wrong. Is there any real evidence that, that effectively there is policing the border now taking place where, um, because of the different regulations, people people are finding it slightly more diff difficult to cross borders? Um, yes, we have seen evidence um, of, of policing on both sides of the border, both by the, the PSNI and the, um, the Garda, um, particularly around weekends like bank holiday weekends, Easter weekend and so on, where traditionally there would be a lot of movement um, to the coast, you know, to, um, across the border to Donegal from the north, for example. And we've seen a lot um, of um, uh, Images. It's extraordinary, actually, images of, of uh, policing the border. Um, I understand, I, I heard the Minister of Justice yesterday in the Assembly um, giving evidence to the Ad Hoc Committee on the COVID response, talking about the good cooperation there is between PSNI and um, and the, the guards. And she was saying, you know, if somebody had an essential journey from 
um, Strabane, which is in north of the border, to Lifford, for example, to work, they wouldn't be stopped. But if they were going from um, Strabane to um, Donegal Town for the weekend to for entertainment, that wouldn't be considered to be a central journey and they would be likely to be turned back. So there's been a lot of focus on on that, um, on, on the policing. But I understand good cooperation and, and mostly most, mostly successfully done. And has that uh, had sort of public support, the fact that the border is now being policed? Um, more? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I think there's an understanding that we're not to be going too far from our homes and that um, those people who have holiday homes, um, you know, ought to stay at home and not potentially bring the virus to small rural um, parts of, of Ireland or vice versa um, up on the north coast here in, in Northern Ireland that we shouldn't be going to holiday homes generally. I think that is an issue. And another issue that's bubbled up just the last day or so, actually, uh, um, around kind of quarantine for you know incoming visitors Ireland has been quite clear that it wants incoming visitors to Ireland to have a 14 day um quarantine um the secretary of state for northern ireland has said that he understands that the common travel area arrangements will still apply so quarantine won't apply to people from the uk and uh, the Irish government or its report has said no that's not the case so there'll be a bit of discussion about that ongoing over the next um while as well i'm sure yeah um aileen uh, any sort of issues with the scottish border I mean, you're right to say that there hasn't been historically policing of movement across the border, but that doesn't mean to say that the border hasn't been legally significant because, you know, ever since 1707, once you cross the border from from, from England to Scotland, you are subject to um, different legal regimes. And, of course, you know, Gretna took advantage of that for many years in terms of of different rules on 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 marriage um i'm not aware of any uh policing of movement across the border particularly although there have been reports um of uh, uh the police uh, turning back people who had traveled um from england uh to 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 scotland um just as they have been turning back people who've been uh, traveling what are regarded as as unjustifiable differences the distances within Scotland, but uh, you know that that may increase if the if, if the rules um, continue to diverge. I know it's been more of an issue um, in Wales. Can I just move on to another topic, which I think is one of the. I mean, COVID is obviously a pretty horrific problem, but one of the uh, horrific aspects of it, obviously, is um, the inequalities. Uh, um, uh, in its impact. And the ONS statistics this week were pretty shocking about um, the impact on, um, in particular, um, uh, 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 people who are uh, performing sort of manual and uh, working class tasks. Um, I certainly have some views about how the English government or the UK government have responded to inequalities. But in terms of the devolved administrations, um, uh, starting again in the order I've generally been using. Um, Aileen, how well do you think the Scottish uh, administration has dealt with um, uh, the problems of inequality? Um, I mean, that, that's that's a, an interesting question. And you're, you're right to say that the, the equalities aspects of, of this pandemic are are quite stark but you know in a sense it's 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 shining a light on inequality that that already exists rather than uh creating inequality so the question is um is enough being done to mitigate the effects um of of these necessary measures on particular groups and i think one thing that's 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 interesting is um the scottish Parliament's coronavirus legislation does impose a specific duty um, on the Scottish ministers when they're exercising their powers under that Act to have regard to opportunities to advance equality and non-discrimination. I'm not sure if that appears in in, in other legislation. Um, You can see some evidence of of that. So in terms of um, the kind of court business that's going ahead, it's the sort of uh, child protection and other kind of necessary um, measures that that that, that could, you know, 
where there may be real harm to people uh, if they can't get access to courts. I think the big issue up here has been about um, care homes. Uh, there is a very high death rate in Scottish care homes. Whether that is higher than elsewhere in the UK is not clear whether it's just a question of uh, of uh, the reporting of statistics or whether it's a real difference. Um, I think there is there are concerns about whether uh, enough has been done um, to protect people um, in care homes. Um, but, you know, as far as I can see, the Scottish government is reasonably sensitive to um, to the to, to the equality implications and is trying where possible to to mitigate them but whether it's doing enough is a you know is a different question daniel turning to the welsh government what's your uh, view of uh, the response of the welsh government to the um inequality exposed by covid um you know there's a lot of concern around for example vulnerable children or so for example i was talking earlier about the emphasis on exercising locally clearly that has uh, uh, an equalities dimension to it. You know, if you live in a leafy suburb, it's probably easier for you to exercise effectively from your front door than if you live in a tower block in the centre of one of the uh, two or three big cities in South Wales. Having said all of that, you know, just today, the Welsh Government has released its... Um, program or its approach to managing lockdown, uh, like I think Northern Ireland, it hasn't set any dates, but it's set seven questions that the Welsh government will consider, will ask when it considers relaxing any part of the lockdown. And one of those seven is, would any relaxation have a positive impact on equality? Evelyn, and turning to the Northern Irish executive, um, how well is it performing in terms of addressing well, these exposed? Certainly, we're very concerned about the impacts on existing inequalities here. I mean, Alison's point, Elaine's pointed out that the both the virus and the impact of the measures are tending towards exacerbating and widening existing inequalities, whether it's older people. We have similar issues about care homes here. People with disabilities very anxious about access to health care. Will decisions be taken um, you know, related to their disability as opposed to anything else? These are real issues, issues about gender, both immediate and, and longer term, all of those compounded by poverty too. So there is there is concern here amongst the public, actually, early on, very much around older people. Um, there was a public debate run, ran in the early weeks around do not resuscitate notices um, and a fear that they were automatically be going to um, you know, be put on the end of a bed of, a, of an older patient and, and uh, limiting access to treatment, for example, um, concerns around access to ventilators and so on, and, and similar for people with disabilities um, and concerns around being involved in any decision making and so on. So all those concerns are here. It's thrown up, um, I think, a number of issues um, locally and that we would actually like to see better addressed. Um, one is the equality duties, which are there. And Aileen, we've had equality duties and um, government departments um, having to pay due regards to each port equality since 1998, actually one of the um, features of the uh, Good Friday Agreement and the outworking of, of changes then. Um, we've been saying as the Equality Commission strongly that you know, that provides a framework for decision-making because you look at the impact, you assess the equality impacts and you take mitigating measures to resolve those we've been advising ministers we've been advising public authorities that you even when you're working at speed as you've had to do in relation to tackling the virus um, the duties persisted you need to be paying due regard and that they're helpful actually in trying to do that but a couple of things arise from that and, and um Dan mentioned it too. Data gaps. Um, we had long-running issue here around the lack of data in some equality grounds. So we're getting data um, published locally about gender impacts and age impacts, but not, for example, um, on um, impact on black and minority ethnic communities, as we've seen happening in Britain. And, and I did pick up that um, in Britain, um, when the, the Minister for Equalities recently said to the Women and Equalities Committee, there is a need for really strong 
data, not only on race and gender and LGBT issues, disability and so on, but also on geography and background. And I think that's right. We have to have good data on which to shape the ongoing policy response. So I think there are real issues here. And the final one that has really been thrown into relief by um, this measures and, and, and the virus is related to concern about access to health care. There is no protection against discrimination on the grounds of age here um, when you're in rece- trying to receive goods and services. It's a long-standing gap between Northern Ireland and the rest of um, the UK since the 2010 Equality Act. Um, and really, not that people are immediately thinking they're rushing to take cases, um, but actually there is no protection if there was denial of treatment on the grounds of age and it wasn't justifiable. There's no recourse to um, the discrimination case here. So we've been highlighting those sorts of things to ministers locally and, and publicly, that these are things that the pandemic has highlighted absolutely urgently need attention. Moving on to another topic, um, one of the things that COVID has done is focused everybody's attention on the response to it. And that means, to some extent, governments um, around the world, really, are not necessarily being held to account. And uh, in Northern Ireland, one obvious example of this is the decision relatively recently um, taken by the UK government, in fact, to refuse a request by the EU for an office in Belfast. Um, looking at the each of the devolved administrations or governments, uh, to, uh, to what extent do you think um, COVID is allowing them effectively to uh, uh, avoid um, um, their uh, accountability, essentially? Um, given I've started with Ireland, shall I start with Evelyn first and then go to Aileen and Daniel? Uh, Evelyn, um, what's your view about that? Um, well, certainly the focus of the executive and the assembly very much has been on the, the COVID response. Um, I mentioned earlier that the executive and the assembly only came back into being in, in uh, January this year. So they had a huge programme of work to do after three years of absence to address many issues of an urgent nature, many of which were set out in the um, document published by the government, um, New Decade, New Approach, um, back in January. Um, So maybe I'll just pick up one, actually, and you already mentioned, um, Hugh, the the Brexit um, issue and the discussion over the last few days around EU office in Belfast or not. Um, It it does appear that there had been an exchange of letters about um, there being an EU office continuing um, back in February 2019 between the UK government and the EU. Um, Although, of course, now the government is saying that that's not going to happen. It's not been discussed and um, there's a different prime minister in place. But other matters are really um, important that, that need to be addressed. Now, there is an Ireland-Northern Ireland protocol to the withdrawal agreement. It forms an integral part of the agreement. It is supposed to be fully implemented at the end of the transition period. Um, There has been one meeting, as you'll all know, of the EU-UK Joint Committee um, to look at the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. That took place at the end of March. There's been one meeting of what's called a specialised committee to look at issues around implementation of the Ireland Northern Ireland Protocol that met at the end of April. Um, The European Commission issued a a technical note at that time, really setting out what it needs to see being done by the UK government in respect of issues like um, uh, border... uh, Customs arrangements, fisheries arrangements, um, and so on, and you know, pressing for progress to be made. And the clock is ticking. Um, I, I believe at the end of June is the latest when the UK can ask for any extension to the transition period, and, and that's important. And, and going back to equality rights, um, part of the agreement, part of the protocol, um, specifies that the UK is committed to no diminution of rights as set out in the, the Good Friday Agreement, relevant parts of the Good Friday Agreement and in the um, EU equality directives um, and that ourselves and the Human Rights Commission will form part of a dedicated mechanism to make that happen. So there's a lot of work to do to put measures in place. Um, and I suppose the local accountability, which was your question going back to that, um, ministers did appear before one of the Assembly committees this week to outline what had been happening. Um, there were a Quite a few issues raised by 
be committee members around the levels of scrutiny, the, the, the need for more information, the need for input. input. Um, and I think that is a real issue for us here. The clock is ticking and um, there hasn't been as much attention paid as perhaps there should have been. Aileen, what about the Scottish Government? Are they being held effectively to account? Um... Well, uh, you know, as in as elsewhere, uh, lots of things have been uh, put on hold in order to uh, to allow civil servants to to devote time to to, uh, to 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 the pandemic. And I think we we probably shouldn't underestimate just how time consuming. Um, it, it really is. The most controversy in Scotland um, has been around about freedom of information, um, rather controversially in the Coronavirus Scotland Act, um, the time for responding to freedom of information requests um, and then requests for review was extended from 20 working days to 60 working days, um, which um, given that, that there's uh, already a perception that the, perhaps the Scottish government isn't as as transparent as it might be. Um, that was that, that didn't go down uh, terribly well. I mean, I, I think with with things like that, I think there was maybe a, a, a quite a reasonable um, expectation at the beginning of of lockdown that uh, you know normal time limits couldn't apply, that that things would take much longer to do. Um, as as the, the the pandemic has as lock, lockdown has progressed, perhaps we've all got a little bit more used to um, online working, um, and it may be time to to kind of reconsider whether these kind of uh, of of departures from normal uh, accountability duties are 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 really justified. I mean, we can see we, that that you know parliaments have gone to to remote working, and that seems to be working. Um, reasonably well. So uh, I think, you know, what may have been justifiable in the early days is not necessarily justifiable um, for very much longer. Thank you. Daniel, is the Welsh Government being held effectively to account? The Senate was, I think, the first legislature to move to an online video conferencing based um, mode of operation. Um, so at that sort of general level, uh, there has been a reasonably regular presence of elected members. In fact, um, one of the one one of the features of this situation is particularly over the last couple of week weeks, uh, the last week or so, uh, Welsh politicians have become much more prominent on the UK stage. Um, the first of those to become prominent was Vaughan Gethin, the uh, the health minister here, and he became famous for the unfortunate reason of having um, spoken inappropriately uh, on a video session uh, in the Senate. Um, that was actually, it seems, uh, expressing some concern about the form of scrutiny that he was being put under. So I'm not sure that's a particularly happy lesson um, from the point of view of holding the executive to account. So there is some concern about it, although there are moves uh, to make it more effective. It's not, it's not clear to me that the, that the committee structure, for example, has yet fully adjusted. And in, in one sense, one might not expect it to. I guess for me, there's a second dimension to this. So you have, I think, some measure of centralization, certainly in Wales, perhaps also in the other devolved governments. But you've also got that centralization uh, in England for the UK government, which is also in effect for many of these matters, the government of England. Um, so there's the centralization within each of these places and then a centralization at the UK level as a whole. And I think some of the most challenging accountability issues um, are around precisely those sort of difficult areas where there's a kind of blurry edge to um, devolved and retained uh, reserved competencies um, and a need for governments to work effectively together. And I don't think we've even begun to get to a stage where the parliaments are working effectively or the legislatures are working effectively together to hold the collaboration between governments effectively to account. So I think there, there, there are two orders of problems that we face uh, that have been kind of unveiled, if you like, by 
the pandemic and uh, uh, and policy to try and manage it. Thank you. Um, just on a sort of concluding note, I mean, my strong impression from what all three of you have said is this is a situation where um, devolved administrations are um, faced with an unprecedented challenge, and that is having an impact on the relationship between the devolved administrations or devolved governments and the UK government. But in terms of what the long-term impact of that uh, relation on, on that relationship is, it's probably too early to tell. It, it, does anyone disagree with that? I mean, that seems to be the sort of overall effect, uh, overall message from what we're talking about today. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's that's right. It's too early to tell. I think there is a slightly worrying undercurrent that I, I've seen, or maybe not such an undercurrent, but a, a, a worrying um, reaction from some right-wing journalists, right-wing think tankers, a kind of almost a, a kind of outrage that, that there is any role for the devolved governments here and, you know, an outrage uh, whether, when there is any uh, sense of departure from the UK government line or, you know, any kind of insistence on uh, parity of status, parity of esteem. Um, now that it's it's difficult to know what the significance of that is, you know, uh, whether these people have any influence over the longer term thinking of the UK government. But if it, if it is indicative of a of a more general attitude towards evolution, then it is extremely worrying um, that, for some people at least, the idea of 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 multi-level government of cooperative government is just completely anathema uh, daniel evelyn anything you want to add to that or anything um you want to say about the sort of long-term I, implications yes, if that's all right um so yeah, yeah. i do think it, i agree it's too early to say anything definitive i think that's partly because I think there's a chance that the pandemic and the lockdown um, will throw lots of things that we thought were reasonably settled or at least long established up for question and renegotiation in fairly fundamental kinds of ways. And I and I agree that there appear to be some people, particularly on the political right in England, whose instincts are... Um, unitary and centralizing, and it'll be interesting to see how important, interesting is one way of putting it, to see how important those voices are uh, as we come through the process. But I'd say uh, two or three other things. One is that it's still striking to me how difficult uh, UK government ministers and officials find it to talk about England as England, even when they're governing England. And I wonder whether as the process of managing the pandemic unfolds, whether there will be a moment when people can speak of England when they're governing England or when England is being governed. And if that happens, I think it might actually create a foundation for a different sort of attitude, a less centralizing, a less unitary attitude um, to, uh, to 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 the future of the UK, or you know how people on th this island, these islands, live together. Um, I'm struck by the fact that the UK Prime Minister does seem to find it easier to talk, for example, about the Dragon's Heart Hospital in Glasgow, in, in Cardiff, sorry, or the Louisa Jordan Hospital in Glasgow, uh, rather than simply calling all of these hospitals Nightingale Hospitals, which is the name used in England and actually in Belfast as well. And the final thing I'd say is I think there's a kind of ironic hiding of what I would think of as the genuinely local or regional dynamics of the pandemic in all of this, and that may come through in a different kind of a way that, you know, 
um, rural Wales and uh, coastal Wales and the Highlands and Islands in Scotland and the Lake District in England probably share more in common in terms of their concerns about um, people traveling to those places uh, for holidays or for recreation uh, as any of them share with their with their within country big city neighbors um, and we really haven't got a handle until very recently i think today is the first day i've started to notice media commentary really picking up on you know the difference between the the rate of spread of the disease in gateshead as compared to london for example and if we're going to get serious about uh, uh, managing the pandemic and the infection, I think those local effects across the UK within each of its constituent nations, um, but across the UK as a whole, will have to be addressed in a much more serious kind of a way. Evelyn, have you got any concluding remarks about I agree that I think it's too early to say, and just in brief terms, I do think there is lots of learning to reflect on about relationships across these islands um, as a consequence of what we've been through over the last eight, ten weeks and what we're likely to continue um, to see needing to be addressed in, in the coming period and that it will be really important to look seriously at, at those lessons and, and build on how we can make improve the relationships, I suppose, in, in a respectful way going forward. But I think too early to say generally. Thank you all. Um, one sort of thing that we've sort of introduced into the podcast is that at the end of the podcast, we ask you all for a recommendation for lockdown reading. Um, uh, reverse the order for this. Uh, Evelyn, um, a recommendation for a, a lockdown book. A, uh, translated from the German, Jenny Erpenbeck. Um, she was winner of the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize recently. A wonderful book around race, privilege, nationality, immigration and ageing. Um, uh, thoroughly enjoyable and could recommend it highly. I've really struggled Daniel? with reading novels during the lockdown. Um, I've found myself turning much more to poetry. So I'll say uh, Dylan Thomas, uh, Seamus Heaney and Jackie Kay, one from each of the three uh, places we've been talking about. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Uh, Aileen. Um, thanks. I, I also haven't been reading a huge amount, but um, like many other people uh, across the UK, I am working my way through Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, which is um, as good as the previous ones, I think. Um, and the other book I've enjoyed re reading recently and would recommend is Deborah Orr's uh, memoir, Motherwell. It's her memoir of growing up in um, Central Belt, Scotland in the 70s and 80s. And, and uh, as somebody who is of a similar age, it, it was very evocative uh, for me. Thank you all. I think it's been really interesting and um, uh, really thought-provoking, and um, hopefully it will contribute to the debate about um, devolution, which, as I say, I don't think from an English perspective is uh, often heard enough.